welcome to a community-supported and guest-produced edition of the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from the BBC, Firedog Lake, The Young Turks, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, Real Time with Bill Maher, Ring of Fire, The Randy Road Show, and, just for fun, some guy we found on YouTube. The problem is you really shouldn't be going to war, a preemptive war, based on a suspicion or a belief. I mean, you should have some proof. I mean, there was no proof. That's the point. This is clearly totally unsatisfactory, that the, the world's biggest governments can go ahead on the basis of such information. I saw a former Jordanian prime minister for dinner, and I said, what if we don't find the weapons of mass destruction? And he said to me, you'd better invent them. With Hans Blix out of the way, all that remained was to prove that Saddam Hussein had procured enriched uranium as part of a nuclear weapons program. But such accusations had to come from an irreproachable source. The White House put forward the name of Joe Wilson, a friend of the president's family. Wilson was the last American diplomat to have met Saddam Hussein in Baghdad. His courage during the Gulf War had led him to be decorated by the first President Bush. Dick Cheney asked the CIA to contact Wilson for a particularly delicate mission. Joe Wilson was a very able ambassador, gave money to Bush one. Uh, and Wilson was called by the CIA to go to a country whose people he knew and check out a rumor that the country of Niger had sold uh, yellow cake, which is a material you'd use in part of nuclear weapons production, to Iraq. The neocons around the president, around President Bush, had been citing this, including Cheney, had been citing this as a reason to invade Iraq. I told them when the decision was made that I would go, but only as a representative of the government. In other words, as someone who asks questions on behalf of the government, not for the CIA. I'm not a spy. So he went. And he talked to several government officials and asked them how they, uh, what type of businesses, business they do with Iranian, what are the safeguards, what are the protections, and came back and said that it was, in his view, unlikely that such a deal could happen. I made my report that said, no, there was no truth in it. There was nothing to the story. To Wilson's great shock, even though he had learned that, the speech that the president gave in the State of the Union, which is the most important speech an American president can give, cited this thing saying it was true. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. We knew from the reports that were made, including my own, that this information was false. Bush is either a liar or he believes it and doesn't know it's not true. Either is bad. Either disqualifies Bush as president. You can't say it was the British. It seems perfectly clear that it was someone within the White House who put something in his speech that couldn't be justified. Well, Wilson was just appalled by it because he knew it wasn't true. The people at the CIA also knew it wasn't true. They had told the White House before that this was wrong. This started a gigantic fight with CIA people leaking all over the place against the White House. It's an issue on which they based the decision to go to war. Not only to war, but to wage a war that led to the invasion, the conquest, and now the occupation of a sovereign nation. That's when Joe Wilson got very upset. And so he decided to write an op-ed piece for the New York Times describing this experience he had. 
Well, the political people in the White House were angry. And the way they dealt with this is they decided to leak the story to five different organizations, all friendly news people that had dealt with them in the past. The one organization that took it was, uh, was uh, Robert Novak, the conservative columnist. He calls one of his contacts at the White House. The White House is trying to diminish Joe Wilson and says, oh, and by the way, you know, his wife is with the CIA and she's the one who had the idea of sending him to Niger. And he ran the story mentioning his, Joe Wilson's wife's name, which is a federal crime. Joe Wilson's wife was a covert operative for the operation directorate of the CIA. And when you mention one of those names, mention a spy's name, you endanger her. Look at what they did. They compromised everything she had done in the previous 20 years. Because it was not only the person, but her whole career that was called into question. All her relations with foreigners. Everything that she'd been able to achieve for her country since joining the CIA. That's one of the worst things I've ever heard of anyone doing in the, the White House. The story was ruining her career, but also undermining her, her work. Every operation she was ever involved with, every country she ever visited, would now become the target of opposing forces in those countries. So a lot of people's lives were put in danger when he did that. The idea of using a member of an opponent's family to try to discredit him or her, hoping to discredit the opponent at the same time, is totally idiotic. Ethically, it's intolerable. The leak is now being investigated in this country, but it's believed to have come from somebody at the White House, either in the vice president's office or the president's office. It's hard for me to believe that that would have been orchestrated by Bush. I suspect that the President of the United States, the appointed President of the United States, is completely clueless about this and many other things. I believe that these individuals who worked for Dick Cheney, the FBI has now established who it was, they worked for Dick Cheney and I believe that they acted independently perhaps of Cheney's guidance, but with his complete protection. He was the one who asked for the report that I'd made. And he was with the president when we analyzed it and went over the State of the Union address. He's the one who's remained the most inflexible on the issue of nuclear weapons, even after receiving not only my report, but all the other reports. I therefore consider him to be dishonest in his speeches and in his efforts to alarm Americans and create a sort of climate of fear. At the White House, George W., avoiding confrontation with journalists, remained desperately silent. President Bush said nothing. He didn't address this. He didn't say, I'm outraged. This is terrible. He didn't say, I want an investigation. He didn't say to his staff, you tell me whether you did this or not. I want you to sign a piece of paper saying you didn't do it. I mean, he did, he did nothing. It's obvious that it was a pretext. They waged war on Baghdad to redraw the political map of the Middle East. Pure and simple.
time to put it right Have you had enough? Have you had enough? FireDogLake.com and Huffington Post. I'm Christy Hardy-Smith from FireDogLake.com and Huffington Post. I'm Marcy Wheeler. I've been live blogging at FireDogLake.com. I'm the author of Anatomy of Deceit and I usually blog at the next hurrah. And the big story of the day from the Libby trial is Cloud over Cheney. Today, Patrick Fitzgerald said that Dick Cheney was behind all of this and that Scooter Libby was obstructing his case. Wouldn't you say I definitely would say that. He must have said cloud over Cheney two or three times, and frankly, I feel a thunderstorm in D.C. today. Yeah, he's going right after Cheney, and I really, for the first time, it seems like he really is going to continue and go after Cheney. Uh, we can hope. It was a strange day. Closing arguments opened with uh, Zeidenberg for the, defense, for the prosecution. And what Zeidenberg did is basically accuse Wells of not having proved one of the, a couple of the central points of his case, most importantly that there was a White House effort to save Rove and throw Libby under the bus. Zeidenberg said that uh, he hadn't proven the case, and that really got under Wells' skin. And as a result, Wells stood up in the first 20 minutes of their closing arguments where he should have been making the case to get Scooter Libby off. He instead was making the case that he had proven his own case. It was a really, really weird time because all of a sudden you expected him to come out, and Zeidenberg's case had been very clean, very neatly laid out for the jury, and you expected Zeidenberg, and you expected Wells to step up and start, you know, trying to create a different picture from the jury for the jury. And the first 20 minutes were spent all about me, 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 and the whole day kind of seemed like, from a defense perspective, it was all about Ted Wells' ego. Am I wrong? I thought Jeffress was very effective in terms of laying out the defense problems with all of the witnesses that the prosecution had put on, especially with Judy Miller's credibility. But frankly, how hard is it to call Judy Miller's credibility <laughs> into question? I mean, really. And then we got Wells back. And at, by this point, both Jeffress and Wells were fighting for the time that they had. You could apparently see them in the courtroom. Do you want to talk about that? It was a strange day in the courtroom because it seemed like there, there was a battle going on between Wells and Jeffress for time, for, for, for strategy, for, for laying their cases out. But the weirdest part happened at the end of Wells' uh, uh, summation when he started, he said, give me Scooter Libby back, and he started to cry. And I guess this isn't like the first time he's done this, right? In the media room, the people who have watched his cases before said, you know, that was more effective in the tobacco case. That was more effective in this case. He said, we've seen this eight times, and that was one of his worst efforts at doing the big sob at the end. I, 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 I have to say that I know that there's been some disagreement about this, but I kind of felt like Wells was selling a used car he knew didn't work. Like, mm -hmm. he, he, like this case had not necessarily been his idea to prosecute in this particular way. It felt like a lot of Scooter Libby was in it, like a lot of Libby's ego. It was very confused at times, and that at the end of it all, he kind of felt like he was going to have to take the personal hit and for a not very well-played-out case. One of the things that I thought was very odd 
with the, the defense case in this is they brought so much politics into it after spending so much time in jury selection trying to weed out anybody who had thought about politics at all. But so much of the case in their summation was about the administration, their war policy, Dick Cheney, Dick Cheney's cloud, the clouds that Dick Cheney brought to everything else he touched in this case. I mean, everything was about politics with them for the summation. And, and, and legally, I didn't think that was as effective as a defense um, for Libby as they, they maybe could have put on. There are lots of ways to communicate with the show, and I encourage you to do so. You can join the community forum to speak with other listeners, send emails direct to me at hippysympathizer at gmail.com, or have your voice heard by the entire audience by calling the comment line at 206-202-0195. Links to all of these at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Sorry, Fleischer went and testified yesterday, former press secretary, uh, and said basically, yes, Libby told me in a lunch, in an, uh, in an unusual lunch, he told me about this. I didn't know it was a, uh, a secret information, and I overheard Dan Bartlett also talking about Dan Bartlett, of course, still works at the and White House. And then he alerted a couple of reporters. And he led a couple of reporters, including David Gregory and John Dickerson of Time at the time, um, know about it. So, And he said, oh, my God, if I had no idea that I was giving away the... Uh, a CIA covert operative's name uh, and identity, if I had, I would have realized, you know, what kind of trouble I'd be in. And as Ben pointed out earlier in the show, of course, not caring about the national security implications or whether this woman was actually going to be in danger or whether her other contacts that they've that they've exposed were going to be in danger, he thought, oh, my God, I might be in trouble. Uh, but it's devastating evidence against Libby because it shows that Libby uh, knew several days before he claimed he learned the information from Tim Russert. He claimed he learned the information on Thursday from of that week from Tim Russert, but Monday of that week, three days before that, here's Ari Fleischer saying, no, he already told me that information. So it's devastating the Libby's case, but also I just wanted to point out here, and we're going to continue to point this out, whether Libby is guilty of this crime or not, uh, and Rove is indicted or not, or Cheney gets in trouble or not, everybody remember that they've admitted this. They've all admitted. Armitage, Rove, Libby, they said, yes, we did out a covert CIA, CIA operative, and we did it for political reasons. The only part is they're saying, we didn't know that she was a covert operative. So they said they're perfectly willing to out a CIA operative, and they're perfectly willing to do it for political reasons. And remember, George H.W. Bush called these people, people who do that, the most insidious of traitors, the most insidious. And and get this amazing fact. The Washington Times and some other conservatives argued at one point, no, it's okay, it's okay what they did, because she wasn't, uh, her, her identity was already blown by Aldrich Ames, the <laughs> notorious traitor to this country. Aldrich Ames, who stole out our CIA agents to the, to the Russians, right? Got people killed. So they're saying it's okay because before Carl Rove sold her out, Aldrich Ames sold her out. And they, and to, Okay, one thing is legal punishment. Now they say, oh, look, you know, sure, Libby perjured himself and or might have perjured himself and obstructed this investigation, but that's no big deal. I remember when perjury was an enormous deal when Bill Clinton was president. But put that aside for a second. To say that uh, 
that the underlying crime can't be proved in a court of law because they, they didn't they can't prove that they knowingly op, uh, outed a covert operative so it must be nothing at all no it's something i mean there should be even if there isn't a criminal prosecution or a criminal punishment for it there's got to be some sort of moral or political or societal punishment for this for the love of god you can't have a guy still continue to work at the white house in an incredibly important position which carl rosen let alone the vice president dick cheney worked there and said yeah yeah we got cia agents we did it without without pause without blinking yeah, go ahead and prove if we knew they were covert or not. Maybe we did, maybe we didn't. You can't prove it, so I'm not going to step down. And in, I, in a previous administration, in previous times, this would have caused an unholy uproar. I mean, imagine if Gore and, and, and Stephanopoulos had said, yeah, we had an agent, and they've cost them their whole careers, and it might have cost them their lives, but you can't prove it in the court of law, so we're staying. In his first live interview since the verdict, I'm joined now by the former acting U.S. ambassador to Iraq, Joseph Wilson. Thank you again for your time tonight, sir. Nice to be with you, Keith. It has been five years this month since your trip to Niger. Is there any sense of personal vindication tonight after all you've been through after today's conviction of Scooter Libby? Well, I think Valerie and I will both sleep easier tonight, knowing that at least one part of this is behind us. Um, I take no satisfaction in this. Uh, I think that the idea of a senior White House official being convicted of obstruction of justice and perjury is, uh, is something that ought to sadden everybody who believes in, in public service. Um, the responsibility of a public servant to uphold and defend the Constitution is besmirched when they're convicted of crimes like this. On the other hand, of course, I think it reconfirms that this is, in fact, a nation of laws and that no man is above the law. And I think we could take some satisfaction that the Constitution has been defended by the prosecution, by the system of justice, and by the jury of peers that, uh, that uh, decided uh, Mr. Libby's uh, guilt today. Your wife clearly has believed in public service all this time. Share with me what you can of uh, Valerie's reaction today. Well, I think she, she wept uh, when, when she heard the news. Uh, I was actually in a restaurant in Washington, D.C., and she called me up, and she just said, uh, four out of five, guilty. And uh, she was very relieved, I think. Uh, she will sleep well tonight, um, uh, knowing, again, that this part of, of this ordeal is behind us. Um, but I would just say that whatever, whatever the last four or five years have been like for us, uh, it's been mere inconvenience compared to what this administration has, uh, has done uh, uh, to our service people and their families in the prosecution of a war 
that was justified on misinformation and lies and was really undertaken not for the national security of the United States, but to prove an academic theory, which wasn't a very good academic theory at that. What did that, that jury verdict today establish about the president, write in stone about the president and the vice president and the, the necessity or the needlessness of the war in Iraq? Well, uh, clearly the evidence that, was, uh, that, that came out during the course of this trial demonstrated that there was an obsession not with getting the facts out, but with destroying and impugning my integrity. And they used uh, uh, Valerie's employment and, uh, and her status as a covert officer to do so. Uh, what this says about the president and the vice president, I don't really know. I, I think that, frankly, now that the trial is over, the president and the vice president ought to quit hiding behind the investigation and the trial. And I think they ought to step forward and tell the American people what they know. And I think they can begin by, um, by sharing the contents of their interviews with Mr. Fitzgerald during the investigatory phase of this. You expect that to happen? I mean, the, the, uh, the, the president's office, the White House, uh, refused to comment further today other than saying that it's, a, it's an ongoing legal case, which is something we've heard a thousand times before. Do you think that, that that's going to change for any reason? Well, I don't know. Uh, the president also said that he would fire anybody involved in the leak. We know that Karl Rove was involved in it. We have that testimony on the record, and he's still employed by the White House. So I don't know, uh, I don't know what to say. Was the president going to keep his word on this or anything? Produced with the help of the members of the Best of the Left community. You too can be a part of the show and we would love your help. You can submit information about great clips you've heard, volunteer to help edit these clips for the show, or actually become an occasional guest producer. For more information, please visit the community at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. about the people who threw Libby to the wolves? Who's um? Now, I must say, Bill, we, I put this in my story, and we put the expletive in there, so you can't be sure it's fucked. She might have said appeal. Um, 
but um, okay. But I will. I will. I will. I will go further and say, in fact, the, the word yeah. was fuck. Um, um, uh, it felt good, didn't it? It did. It did. Yeah. Uh, that's why you wanted to be on this show. But it raises the question. Maybe it raises the question of who they want to fuck. Maybe she meant the people who convicted them. Could yeah. have been the jury. Could no. have been the judge. Oh, could on. it be the vice president? Yes, I think she's. I think she's talking about about Rove and and uh, Bush and Cheney, who threw him to the wolves. And if so, that's very frightening. The question is, you'd think that if he had some some goods on them, he might have actually used that in his defense during the trial. He did. That's what the defense's position was. He's the fall guy. That's what the jurors said when they came out of the box. Is you know what? We wished it was Rove and and Cheney, but it wasn't. It was this guy who they threw to the wolves. You know, and I think there's, there's a caution here, which is, I mean, obviously everyone's focused on Scooter Libby, but it's a big mistake if all of the attention gets focused on this one guy. Right? It's actually good for the Republicans if it gets focused on Scooter Libby. Why? Because if it gets focused on Scooter Libby, then right. they have a fall guy. Because they, have, they can point on him. They can just sort of say, well, you know, he was a road guy. He right. was the problem. Right. It was all about Scooter Libby. The right. That all of this was and about Scooter not... Libby is like saying right. I'm a gay Swedish bodybuilder. And let's... <laughs> And we know you're not a bodybuilder. But, uh, uh, no. That's the point. Yes, and the actual crime, let's not forget, the actual crime was outing a spy. And I know the right Is that the actual crime, though? Absolutely. Because you know how we forget it all the time, because every day there's a new layer of, like, you know, look that way, red herringness on it, so we don't really know. Was no. the real thing maybe that some documents were forged that got us into a bullshit war? Well, that's part of it, yes. That's what... The spy's husband was looking into. Valerie Plame was collateral damage to get back at this guy, Joe Wilson. And that's why they had some meeting and they said, okay, you guys, Rove and Libby, and you, you, you fan out and you talk to reporters and you tell them that, you know, whose wife was a wink, wink CIA agent. And, you know, I noticed that Bush feels bad about Scooter Libby. They all say he was a great guy and we're sorry. No apologies to Valerie Plame, who oh, lost her absolutely. career. No apologies to the other spies, you know, who worked at Dunder Mifflin, who got their cover blown. But, you know, this is the way they operate. I mean, last fall, when my book came out, I got a call from a very senior reporter who said, you know, they're telling people, they've looked through your CIA records where I worked, you know, when I came out of college. And they said, well, there may be some inconsistencies there. Right? And so they're going through my CIA records, right, over a book about compassion. You know, I mean, you can sort of yeah. think about... You know, what this, what this trial really brought out, I think, had very little to do with Scooter and probably was correct in saying that he was a fall guy. We learned that Ari Fleischer was leaking. We knew, as we already did, that uh, Karl Rove was leaking. We know that Armitage over at the State Department, and everybody was leaking. Uh, and that astronaut lady. Uh, she probably yeah. was, too. Yes. <laughs> but it's, a huge, it's huge, though. I think it's way huger than we're even remembering because it's about forged documents. Well, that partly, said, yes. You know, that got us into a war. And also it's about uh, breaking down freedom of the press for people who, like, cannot protect their sources anymore. Well, you know, I think so the press actually... So it's like another bill. It's, an, it's another one of our rights that's being diminished. The press, except Dana, of course, um, deserves a fair amount of responsibility for this war. Yes. I mean, yeah, that's the, true. the press did not well, do its duty no. in, in, in pursuing intelligence on this war. There was a rush to judgment by the press on right. this war. So and let's not forget, Bush said, I, I know now, people have made a big deal about the fact that Clinton was impeached for the exact same charges that got Scooter Libby. Lying, right? Perjury, yeah. obstruction yeah. of justice. Mm -hmm. 
and, and Clinton said, I did not have sex with that woman. We know that was a lie. But Bush said, when this whole thing started to break, he said, if there's anyone in this administration who leaked classified information, I'd like to know who. <laughs> well, it was you. It's the guy you're shaving, right? Was it not George Bush who did that? Isn't he the guy who, now maybe Cheney came to him and said, uh, we need this information, just sign it, you know. And Bush didn't really know what was going on. But it was him who was the guy that he was looking for. <laughs> Not good grammar, but all right. I want to. Everybody knows who it is. Everybody knows who's guilty, too. I think we all know, right? Well, no, I don't think people follow this story. I think it's too convoluted. I think yeah, half the people who listen to this conversation say, what are they talking about? I heard something, but it's not about a blowjob, so I just get... I'm a private detective. My father named me Hugh. My mother named me Jim. My last name is Bissell. So my friends call me... Hugh Jim Bissell. <laughs> the recession, it hit me pretty hard. I was working less than a West Virginia tooth fairy. Every day I checked my answering machine only to find it contained fewer messages than John Kerry's campaign. I thought a potential client might be trying to get in touch with me via email, so I checked my inbox. Sure enough, 437 new messages. Each and every one of them assuming I'm an undersized male who wants a smaller mortgage rate and a bigger cup size. Well, times were tough. My bank account was leaner than Lindsay Lohan on a hunger strike. Things were so bad I was getting considering getting married just for the rice. But that's when I got a phone call. A phone call I'd never forget. Oh sure, I'd gotten obscene phone calls before but never collect. The sad thing was I really couldn't afford to listen as long as I wanted. But a half an hour later, I got another phone call. Another phone call I'd never forget. This time it was the special prosecutor's office when they had an assignment for me. They wanted me to find out who had really leaked the name of that CIA operative. Apparently their own investigation was moving slower than Michael Jackson leaving a Cub Scout meeting. Let's be nice to him, folks. He's down to two packs a day. There we go. Well, I didn't know if I was going to take the assignment, and I told him so. I still bore the scars of my last government investigation when they'd asked me to find out who was behind the uh, abuse of prisoners at Abu Ghraib. I was still haunted by the photos that had been released from the prison. I hadn't seen such revolting displays of nudity and sexual humiliation since high school. And I was homeschooled. Well, they said they'd send somebody around to talk to me, but I'd pretty much decided I was going to take the case. I mean, sure, it was a nasty job, but it was just the kind of case that could turn my career right around, and I was going to sink my teeth into it, just like a white tiger on an effeminate German magician. It was 1,100 hours. I was supposed to meet with somebody from the special prosecutor's office at 1,300 hours. That left me barely... 200 hours to shower and shave. Precisely the appointed time, the doorbell rang. 
I swung open the door to find Special Prosecutor Patrick Fitzgerald disguised as a clown. There was something funny about him. Well, I invited him inside, but I have to tell you, I was suspicious. I was more suspicious than Hillary Clinton catching the maid slipping into a pair of knee pads. And that is pretty suspicious. So I told him I wasn't going to take the assignment. He could be on his way. And he left. I mean, after all, let's face it. I figured this investigation was as pointless as buying an anniversary present for Jennifer Lopez. But after he's gone, it hit me. An idea so wild, an idea so whacked out, so crazy, that for one second, I thought I was Tom Cruise. What if the Democrats were behind this? I mean, if you looked at this in a certain light, you could argue that, sure, the leak of this CIA operative's name was a a well-timed, finely-tuned, astute political move. So, of course, the Democrats couldn't possibly have anything to do with it. This week, I spoke with former Ambassador Joseph Wilson following the guilty verdict of Scooter Libby, and a few days before his wife, Valerie Plain Wilson, was due to testify before a congressional committee that is pursuing some of the leads that came out of the Libby trial. For those of you who've been living in a cave recently, former Cheney aide Louis Scooter Libby was convicted of lying and obstructing justice in connection with the Bush administration's outing of Valerie Wilson as a CIA operative, which was clearly an attempt to smear Joseph Wilson as he publicly debunked the administration's claims of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Joe, thanks for joining us on Ring of Fire. It's great to be with you, Bobby. Now, you know, I used to watch you on TV because you were on all the time on the the talk shows during the run-up to the war in Iraq, and I really had a, a, a... problem figuring out whether you were a Republican or Democrat or kind of what your bias was. But in fact, you're a lifelong public service official, despite the administration's attempts to kind of smear you as a Democratic ideologue. You had close working relations with President Bush, this president's father, with James Baker III, and really had no ideological dog in this fight, right? Well, I wouldn't say that, that uh, I certainly have never been ideological. I'm a, a realist and a pragmatist and served my country for 23 years as a diplomat in both Republican and Democratic administrations. Ken Melman and the Republican National Committee have tried to airbrush out of my curriculum vitae the fact that my one political appointment as ambassador uh, was in the administration of George Herbert Walker Bush, who was a Republican. So it is true. My, my The stance I took on the war was a stance based on the national security interests of our country, which affect us as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans. And what I said was, if you're going to send kids off to kill and to die in the name of the American people, we ought to be damn sure there's a good reason for doing so. Um, And frankly, just overthrowing the regime is not a good enough reason. Uh, Weapons of mass destruction were a reason to re-energize the international political will to contain Saddam, but there was no good justification for invading, conquering, and occupying Iraq. And I knew from my own experience as the last American diplomatic official to confront Saddam Hussein before the first Gulf War, uh, I knew a lot about the regime and I knew a lot about the region. Just to recap what happened, the forgery that you went to investigate was a document that was on stationery that had been stolen from the Niger embassy. They had a Niger stationery, the government of Niger stationery, with a forged signature of Saddam Hussein on it. Basically an invoice 
supposedly purchasing this yellow cake uranium. Is that correct? Well, I never saw the documents. I was briefed that there were documents which were purported to be a bill of sale from Niger, the West African nation of Niger, and Iraq covering the sale of 500 tons of uranium yellow cake. That's what I was told. When I went and investigated this, I talked to the former prime minister who would have been prime minister at the time this alleged sale took place, and he told me that any bill of sale would have to contain certain signatures, the signature of the minister of mines, the signature of the foreign minister, and the signature of the prime minister. And if they didn't contain those signatures, they could not be authentic documents. And, in fact, when the documents showed turned up, uh, they did not contain those signatures. The signatures they contained in one case was uh, of somebody who had been out of office for 10 years. I can tell you that based on reporting. To this day, I've never been, I've never seen the documents. I've, I've seen them once, but I didn't have my glasses on, so I couldn't make out what they said. And then, of course, that claim became key in the administration's efforts to sell the war to the American people and the United Nations, the famous 16 words that President Bush uttered in the State of the Union address, essentially him saying that the British government has determined that Saddam Hussein has been attempting to buy yellow cake from Niger, and you then responded to that some months later with a op-ed piece in the New York Times saying that actually... There's doubts about that story. Yes, what I said was I had to conclude that the administration had twisted the intelligence to, to fit a political decision that had already been taken. Uh, the administration knew well ahead of the State of the Union address that there was no substance to this charge. They had been told to take it out of an address in Cincinnati in October. The deputy national security advisor had to offer his resignation because when he went through his files, he found three faxes or two faxes and a memo from a telephone conversation with George Tenet saying, don't use this claim. Uh, three weeks before the State of the Union address, the National Intelligence Officer circulated a memo through the U.S. government saying the claim that Niger sold uranium to Iraq is baseless and should not be used. So they, they used it anyway. And, of course, the mantra to support the justification for going to war was this famous sentence, we cannot afford to wait for the smoking gun to come in the form of a mushroom cloud. Right. Now, you know, whenever I see the Republicans who are full bore attacking you right now and the conservative right, they always say the same thing. They have the same talking points. They say that a bipartisan senatorial committee found that three basic claims in your editorial were false. How do you respond yeah. to that? Well, that, first of all, that's not right. Uh, there was an additional views put out by three right-wing senators, Pat Roberts, Orrin Hatch, and Kit Bond, which, which make this argument. And the three allegations are one that my wife sent me, which is not true, and you need only to look at the memoranda, the exhibits that were entered into evidence. They, they demonstrate conclusively that at the meeting where this was discussed, uh, the CIA uh, wanted me to go, not my wife, other CIA officials, the State Department and me and myself, supporting the State Department position was that we had a fully confident embassy out there to do it. There was no need to do so. I was sent irrespective of that. Now, it's one thing to argue that my wife sent me because I was a hapless ex-diplomat who couldn't get a job. It's quite another thing to make the argument that, uh, that she would send me over my own objections. Uh, this was done because uh, it was determined by people in a position to make these decisions that uh, it was important to be able to answer as fully as possible the Vice President's question. The second uh, argument is that I've claimed to have seen the forgeries. I never did make that claim. It was written up in Nick Kristoff's um, uh, first article. 
he may have been referring to somebody else. By that time, by the time Kristoff wrote the article, the fact that these documents were forgeries was well in evidence, and they may have conflated two different individuals. And the third claim, I think, is the claim that somehow I knew that this was from Italy. I did not, uh, and I was not a source for the article for which I've been accused of being a source of. guilty of something as un-American as deceiving the fine men and women of our federal law enforcement. Quite often, the right wing's champions of law and order applaud loudly at the wisdom of the jury, the tenacity of the prosecutor from Ken Starr to Rudy Giuliani. But in our fourth story on the countdown, the case of convicted criminal Louis Libby, has it caused the party to go soft on crime? Fox News felt it was more important for its viewers to understand clearly Louis Scooter Libby not convicted on one count. Hey everybody, he got off. The TV banner reading, Scooter Libby found not guilty of lying to FBI investigators. True in its way, and Mrs. Lincoln was enjoying that play. Okay, when it came time for legal analysis, Fox decided to pose the question in this banner reading, was there even a crime? Then there were those who came right out and say, tried to say Libby was kinda guilty, like kinda pregnant. He really didn't seriously impede the investigation. He's been a loyal uh, and effective member of this administration. There's every reason to pardon him. Rush Limbaugh declaring that this crime helps Republicans and that when Democrats take a hard line against crime, it energizes the Republican base. This has the chance to do more for the Republican Party than anything else in the short run. And the more the Democrats gloat, and the more they politicize this, and the more they lie about what this case and this trial was about, the angrier they are going to make Republicans and conservatives in this country. So it was a good crime, I guess? Joining us now with the tough-on-crime news stance of the left is Air America Radio's Sam Cedar, whose show airs weekday mornings from 9 to noon Eastern Time. Sam, thanks for being with us tonight. Thank you, uh, Allison. It's a pleasure. Help us out with this dilemma. When the right's two most influential outlets, Rush Limbaugh and Fox News, are defending criminals, slamming prosecutors and juries, are they sincerely going soft on crime, or are they trying to make chicken salad out of chicken other things? Well, I, you know, I, I think this is indicative of the conservative movement today. I mean, conservatives can't do anything that's illegal. Anything a conservative does by its very definition, because it's done by a conservative, can't be wrong. Uh, so therefore, there was no crime committed here, even though he was uh, convicted of, uh, on four counts. But is Rush right in some way? Will this energize the conservative base somehow? I mean, I have no idea, but if it did, it would be horribly sad, wouldn't it? I mean, they're going to rally around someone who is obstructing an investigation into one of the central reasons why we supposedly invaded and occupy Iraq. I mean, that's pretty sad, although I've seen sadder things from the right wing, frankly. 
Well, let's talk about this a little bit. Is the right defending Lucas Libby because they like him personally? And hopefully he'll be quiet and remain loyal, not get anybody else in any kind of trouble. Or is it okay to do whatever you have to do, even if it's a crime, if it will help sell the war and, in their opinion, provide safety for the country? Well, I mean, I think it's somewhere, uh, somewhere in the middle there. I mean, I think Libby is sort of like a gateway drug for conservatives to truth. And if they, if they accept the fact that Scooter Libby was uh, convicted of these crimes, then they have to ask, well, why did he lie? Who was he protecting? Well, obviously, we, we saw in the trial that he was protecting Dick Cheney. And then the question becomes, why was Dick Cheney so obsessed with smearing Joe Wilson uh, over these uh, charges that he supposedly thought were real about uh, yellow cake uranium? So I think at the end of the day, uh, it's a question of conservatives. They just don't want to go down that road because if they come to the conclusion that, that many Americans have, over 50 uh, percent certainly of the country, that the Bush administration lied us into this war in Iraq. blame me for this whole war uh, because they blame me for virtually every other mistake that they've gotten themselves into in foreign policy in this regard. Uh, so it was a matter of great relief. Of course, we take no joy in the fact that a senior public servant is convicted of essentially subverting the Constitution of the United States, obstruction of justice and perjury. But it is a reaffirmation that we are, in fact, a nation of laws and that no man is above the law. And, and so to a certain extent, it reinforces the good things about this great country of ours. Congressman Waxman is holding congressional hearings on this issue and has called Patrick Fitzgerald as well as your wife, Ellery Plain Wilson. Um, why doesn't he call Karl Rove? What are the obstacles to him? Well, I'm, I'm not privy to what they're thinking up there on the Hill. My understanding is that this first hearing is to determine how they mishandle classified information. After they've had that hearing, I wouldn't be surprised if they if they have another hearing to question people who uh, were involved in mishandling the classified information. Are you happy with Patrick Fitzgerald's performance? I think the uh, I think the performance of Mr. Fitzgerald and his team was exemplary. I think the way that Judge Walton handled the trial was uh, was beyond reproach, and I have great appreciation for the jury of Mr. Libby's peers and their service to the country and, and listening to all the evidence, listening to the defense and coming to their own conclusions. You and your wife, Valerie Plain, have filed a lawsuit against Vice President Cheney and presidential advisor Karl Rove, as well as Scooter Libby, accusing the three of violating your constitutional rights in retaliation for your criticism of President Bush. What is the substance of that lawsuit, and what's the procedure for now? And you probably had to wait until the criminal issues were resolved, because otherwise the defendants could say could take the fifth, saying that there was a criminal proceeding. But now that that should be opened up, correct? 
Well, that's correct. And we've actually added to the lawsuit Rich Armitage, the former Deputy Secretary of State, and there may be others we add later. The purpose of the lawsuit is, one, to get the truth out. Um, even though there has been a criminal trial, none of the people that we are suing civilly testified at that trial. And I think there's still a lot more to learn about what went on. So we'd like to get the depositions of Mr. Cheney, Mr. Armitage, Mr. Robe, as well as Mr. Libby. Secondly, we want to hold those officials who were involved in really the abuse of the public trust uh, to account. And thirdly, we'd like to use this as a means of deterring future generations of public servants from engaging in such abhorrent uh, behavior. Let me ask you this. Is there any solid evidence on record now that Dick Cheney was actually involved in this? Well, having worked in the White House at the National Security Council, I can tell you that when the president or the vice president annotate a newspaper article and send it to staff, that is generally received as talking points or a call for action, as an action memo. These are not just idle musings that you ignore. When the president or the vice president express an interest in something, it is the responsibility of staff to act on that. The vice president of the United States annotated the article, my article, my opinion piece, and so I think that requires, at a minimum, that he answer the public's right to know about what he did know and what he did in this regard. I think there's other testimony in the trial that indicates that he was involved up to his eyeballs. And, of course, Mr. Fitzgerald, uh, both during the trial and afterwards, made it very clear that, in his judgment, there is a cloud over the vice president, and that has not been lifted because Mr. Libby obstructed justice. He threw sand in the empire's eyes. What was the nature of the annotations for our listeners who didn't follow the trial closely? You know, what, what sure, was the, the vice president, president wrote handwritten notes, and uh, the handwritten notes included such things as, did uh, his wife send him on a junket? That was probably the key one, that, uh, because, of course, the crime, the underlying crime that was committed, the, the cause the CIA to refer this matter to the Justice Department in the first place, was the compromise of the identity of a covert CIA officer. And here you have the Vice President of the United States saying, did his wife send him on a junket? And, of course, within days, you had the President's um, uh, spokesman, Ari Fleischer. You had the, the Secretary of State suggesting very strongly that the press go look for who sent me. Uh, and then you have Mr. Libby and Mr. Rove actively talking to reporters, mentioning my wife and her employment at the CIA. What was the significance of Kathy Martin's testimony during the trial? She, of course, was the communications director for Cheney and was involved in meetings in which Cheney actually mentioned you. Right, and so she was able to demonstrate to the jury the extent to which the vice president and Mr. Libby were obsessed with me. And they should have really been obsessed with the lie in the State of the Union address, but they decided they would kill the messenger instead. Uh, and uh, she was present at a time when this was all being discussed on several occasions. And when Mr. Libby took over from her the responsibility for pushing this campaign of disinformation. Fitzgerald seemed to indicate in his statements to the jury that Cheney, that he believed Cheney was involved. He told the jurors that the investigation of the true nature of the vice president's involvement was impeded because Libby had obstructed justice. Uh, I think that's exactly right, and uh, which is why I've been saying uh, ever since that I think at a minimum uh, the president and the vice president owe the American people an explanation of their role, and they can begin by releasing the transcripts of their own conversations with Mr. Fitzgerald. 
Scott McClellan seemed to indicate at one point that the president was looking, honestly looking for the perpetrators and trying to figure out who they were. Was this something that was done behind his back, or was this something? That, I mean, you know, what do you what do you speculate is the relationship between Cheney and Bush on this kind of thing? Well, you know, when you have um, Karl Rove as intimately involved in this as he was, you have to ask the question, what did the president know and when did he know it? Now, I would like to think the president was not involved, but I think the president owes the American people an explanation. I think he needs to come out and say he wasn't involved. I think he needs to come out and share the transcript of his own conversation with Mr. Fitzgerald. Uh, I think he needs to reassure the American people that he was not party to this uh, skullduggery. It took so long to investigate the outing of Valerie Plain, CIA operative, classified information, covert operative that the CIA worked for right there at the, uh, um, the, 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 the directorate, meaning she was covert. Um, it took so long to investigate her that people forgot what Scootalibby was of today. They just said, oh, yeah, he's guilty. What did he do again? <laughs> really? Really? What did he do again? Wow. Well, let's see. Goes a little something like this. President wanted to lie about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So the president lied. The CIA looked at the state of the speech, which the CIA often does. In fact, they regularly do. And said to the president, you can't say that Iraq has a uranium that they purchased from Africa. We sent a guy, Ambassador Joe Wilson, you might remember him. You know, he was the charge to affairs in Iraq, meaning he was the, the, the U.S. envoy in Iraq. You just sent him over there a year ago, and he told you that that document was a forged document. There was no transfer of uranium from Africa to Saddam. Take that out of the speech. president took it out of some speeches, but not the State of the Union. Oh, no, he put it in there. Now, this was a year after the president knew that no such thing had occurred. And still he said, large quantities of uranium have been transferred from Africa. And those became known as the 16 words. Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. And he sounded really, really scary when he said it, too, which was offensive. Not just that he lied, but that he sounded so scary when he did it. I don't like a president that sounds scary. So anyway, that's how it started. Well, Ambassador Joe Wilson, who a year before that had already told the president, the vice president, or anybody who, you know, uh, would listen, that that didn't happen was stunned that the president said it, didn't do anything about it until after the war began. 
Remember, President gave State of the Union in January. War began in March. After March, Ambassador Joe Wilson went, oh, my God, they did it. Oh, my freaking God. So he wrote an opinion piece, an op-ed, called What I Didn't Find in Africa. This so outraged the vice president. How dare he point out the truth? He should never tell the American people the truth. The truth, you can't handle the truth. Remember I said that because I got something to tell you about that later. So, Cheney made these little doodles, made these little notes on his copy of the New York Times op-ed. And I wanted to know what the hell was Ambassador Wilson doing writing the truth there in the newspaper? What the hell was he doing? And he had his secretary call over to the CIA and said, whose idea was it to send Ambassador Wilson and what the hell's going on and why is he writing in the New York Times or some such thing? Because we don't know what he said because Cheney never testified. All we know is what Cheney's secretary said under oath. She said that she placed the call to the CIA and that the CIA told her that Ambassador Joe Wilson's wife was Valerie Plame, a covert operator who worked on weapons of mass destruction. She worked on non-proliferation issues. And Scooter Libby and Dick Cheney were told that at the same time by the secretary, Kathy Martin. And the vice president had a light bulb go off over his head. It wasn't a blood clot. It was an idea that he had about how to punish Joe Wilson, about how to make him pay for writing the truth in the New York Times after he got his stinking war. And so he decided that the best thing to do would not just be to smear Joe Wilson and say, oh, he just went there and what did he do, sit around and drink green tea? What does he know about this stuff? And whitewash his entire career in service to the United States as the envoy to Iraq the year before this war and ambassador to various African nations where he knew Africa and he knew Iraq. Therefore, perfect person for this job, right? So they smeared Ambassador Wilson, we all remember. Oh, he just went and drank green tea. What does he know? And I mean, I got phone calls from people going, he just drank green tea. What does he know? I mean, just repeating it verbatim. Like little idiots, just repeating it like, you're a little puppet boy. Puppet, puppet. And just for good measure, he decided to take out his wife's career, too, and put in danger anybody she had come in contact with at Brewster Jennings, a brass plate CIA cover company. Anybody that had a business card from Brewster Jennings, God love them. I don't know what happened to them. They've never told us whatever happened to any of her colleagues. Nobody knows. Some people say there was no after-action report at the CIA. Other people say there was, and you don't want to know, and I can't tell you anyway. But it's a safe bet that people all over the world were tortured and killed because Dick Cheney wanted it that way. I know a lot of you are going, so what's new, Randy? Why is it? Yeah. Well, because this was one of our, in, you know, I was going to say somebody in service to our country, but it does, you know, they don't care. So what happened was the CIA sent a criminal complaint over to the Justice Department. One of our covert operators' names appeared in a newspaper. Uh, could you uh, get on? That's criminal. Somebody who had classified information about a classified operator, a clandestine officer, a covert officer, a knock, a non-official cover officer.
who would risk her life as a spy for us to get information in Iraq and Iran on weapons of mass destruction and nuclear proliferation and her entire brass plate company, a name which none of us should know, Brewster Jennings, I should not know that, has been outed. So they sent a criminal referral to the Justice Department. Well, John Ashcroft was so biased that he had to recuse himself. He's, oh, I can't do it. I love these men. I love them. I do. I love them. In a gay way. I don't know. And so he had to appoint a prosecutor. He had to choose a prosecutor. Now, some people say independent counsel. He wasn't an independent counsel. He was a special prosecutor. Independent counsel, he would write reports on Cheney, too. He'd write reports on Armitage, too. He'd write reports on Karl Rove, too. We would know all about But this was not, there's no more independent counsel. Remember when the Republicans got done with the independent counsel and, and Clinton? Uh, they abolished it. Thank you. Bye-bye. We'll never have another one of those. We got a Republican president incoming. Incoming. Get rid of the independent counsel statute. So they did. So that's why we'll never know what it is that Fitzgerald found, except that he couldn't get far enough into the investigation to actually figure out who the hell outed Valerie Plame because there was so much stinking obstruction going on and so much freaking lying over here that he could, he said, I feel like an umpire in a game and they, they keep kicking sand in my face. I can't call the game. So I have to end the game and charge the player who kicked the most sand in my face with a foul. So he charged Scooter Libby with obstruction of justice two counts of perjury, and two counts of making false statements to the FBI. The jury said he's guilty of obstruction of justice. He's guilty on one count of perjury. Nah, make it two. Yeah, he lied to the FBI about Tim Russert. Not sure if he lied about what, what Matt Cooper and him talked about, because Matt Cooper didn't have the notes, and they had a reasonable doubt about Matt Cooper's version of stories. I'm sorry, Matt, but that's what they said. And so they, they, they found him not guilty on one charge, of making false statements to the FBI, but not the other one of making false statements to the FBI. And that he lied at the grand jury, and that he lied under oath, and that he obstructed the entire investigation. Each count carries a, well, the, the obstruction itself is a big one. That comes with 10 years in prison maximum. The other counts come with five-year maximums, and each count can be fined up to $250,000 over here. So here's my question to you. Does he get pardoned? I saw him on the radio. There are three huge things you can do to help support the show, but they only take a few seconds. Leave us a great customer review in the iTunes Music Store, dig the show on dig.com, and every month you can vote for the best of the left at podcastalley.com. Find links to all three of these most important sites on the right-hand side at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Thanks for your support.
is a liar. A jury of his peers decided that he lied to the grand jury. He lied to the FBI. He committed perjury. If I were to commit those crimes, or you or anybody else except these politician bastards, we would be sent down. We would go to prison. We would pay a fine. This man does not deserve a pardon because he lied to cover up those men who were seeking to discredit another man who was criticizing the war. He is complicit in this war. He is complicit in the support for the war. He shouldn't be fucking pardoned. And I'm very happy that the bloggers agree with me. I'm very unhappy that the right-wing lying bastards that pushed for the impeachment of Clinton for the very same reasons, but the fact that Clinton did it because he shoved a cigar up a woman's cunt then wanted to smoke it. Well, lying about sexual relations can be seen as wrong and, well... Scooter Libby lied about national security, his support, his covering up, his protection of the president of Cheney has seen over 3,000 Yanks die, nearly 200 Brits die. Millions of people being affected in very negative terms by this war, suffering an infinite misery that we can never calculate is down not to this man alone, but his complicity, his support. Why should we free Scooter Libby? Or, uh, because he lied under oath to the grand jury? That's uh, very funny. We all remember when lying to oath was an impeachable offence and it doesn't... It wasn't even that long ago. Of course, the same people who were saying free Scooter Libby now are the same ones that were saying hang Bill Clinton! Now, we're having Plain, who is the person who was named, the CIA operative, is going to actually sue some members of the executive branch. Cheney may also face a Senate committee on his actions in the run-up to the war. Well done, Democrats, after five years. Couldn't be a little political there, could it, you dogfuckers? Oh, I hate the fucking Democrats. Weak-willed, pussy little motherfuckers. These people did not stand up. These people did not make a sound. They will be just as bad as the Republicans when they get into power, if they do. The modicum of power that they have right now is not being wielded with any effectiveness. We see a few politicians go, isn't it sad that we sent people to be tortured? Isn't it sad that Walter Reed is some kind of scandal? Isn't it sad that we're sending injured men back to Iraq? Isn't it sad that we're sending untrained men to Iraq? And then, yet they still do nothing. Isn't it sad that we don't give them the proper armour? Isn't it sad that we don't give them the proper protections? Isn't it sad that we were led like fucking sheep into a war that we know is wrong? And there's only half a dozen Democrats who have the balls or the audacity to say that because they were against the war in the first place. Here's a story that wasn't relevant until now. Uh, back in February, just a couple of weeks after I moved to the D.C. area, I'd been invited to a meeting of the local chapter of Drinking Liberally. Uh, they're a nationwide organization. They have chapters in major cities, and you uh, organize and, and get together and drink and commiserate about... Uh, the sorry state of the nation, basically. 
But this one day, they had a, a, a guest speaker, an author, was there, and it, she was actually, in this show, she wrote The Anatomy of Deceit, and I've forgotten her name at the moment, but she blogged at Firedog Lake, and she was one of those two or three girls talking about uh, the Libby trial in the show. And um, so she was going to be there and talk to the crowd and sell and sign her book and whatnot. And so I went, and it was exciting. But the real excitement was just when I first got there. Um, it was in this back room of a little bar near uh, DuPont Circle, which is apparently famous. I didn't know that until I got here. But um, this, this, so there's this little bar, and then we went in the back room, and there's a little table, well, a big table with, you know, 10 or 15 people around it. But sitting at the head of the table, uh, just talking kind of conversationally with, with the people around him, was Joe Wilson. Now, I don't know, have you guys ever heard the saying that uh, Washington, D.C. is like Hollywood for ugly people? Because it's pretty true. It, you know, the only difference is that the people in D.C. who are you know, pretty honest-to-goodness famous are that way because they've actually contributed something to society and, um, you know, actually have an impact on world events, whereas uh, the people in Hollywood are generally famous because they're attractive. Um, The people in D.C., on the other hand, are generally, I'll, I'll say, uh, yeah, unattractive. Just, you know, because they're normal people. Now, if, of course, if you're from D.C., you're the exception that proves the rule. Um, so, don't worry about that. But I I didn't actually meet Joe Wilson. I'm, I'm sure if I had, I would have told this story long ago, but uh, I didn't actually meet him. He left the meeting early, and so I didn't really have a chance, but I didn't really know what to say either, you know, like, it's, it's not like a, uh, hey, I'm a big fan kind of a moment, um, you know, I'm sorry for your loss, didn't quite fit, and would have been awkward, and, you know, I just, nothing came to me immediately, so I let it go. Um, but I, I have thought, you know, since I live near DC, I have a, I'll say better than average chance of running into some political celebrities. And so I have thought to myself, if I run into, say, a presidential candidate, uh, at least one who I would have an inclination to help, I, I've told myself that I would say to them, the American people will always elect someone strong and wrong over someone who's weak and right. Of course, just a quote stolen from Bill Clinton. But nonetheless, I have a plan for that situation. But uh, pretty much anyone else, I don't know. So my question to you is, what should I say to politically famous people when I run into them in D.C.? Now, I know it can depend on who the person is, but, you know, give me whatever you got. If you got a specific person in mind, 
uh, general person, uh, you know, just a general uh, uh, general thoughts to uh, to toss out anything from uh, sincere, thoughtful questions to uh, rude, snarky comments. I'd I'd like it all because not only will I uh, use your suggestions and then report back, but it'll give me a, a way to start a conversation anyways because I you know I'm not particularly skilled at that myself so I just don't have that much uh, experience with celebrities political or otherwise so let me know what you think there will be a new thread posted in the forums at bestofleftpodcast.com slash community and uh, or you can post it to uh, the blog or email hippiesympathizer at gmail.com any any of the above any of the above there's also a phone number that I don't ever remember so that's why I don't mention it Um, but yeah send send me your uh, comments, questions, suggestions uh, because I I could use them because I know just mathematically speaking I'm going to run into some people who I'm going to want to talk to and I'm going to freeze up and not know what to say so, uh, so help me out, and um, you, you know, let me let me know what you think, serious or uh, otherwise. And that's going to be all the fun for today. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the border of Washington D.C., my name's Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast. Coming to you from bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Bought a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor